So hello and welcome everyone. This is Untold Stories podcast. I'm your host, uh, Osama Gawish. Eleven years ago, thousands of Egyptians took into streets in massive protests demanding bread, freedom, social justice, and human dignity. Protests gathered in Tahrir Square in the heart of Egypt's capital, Cairo. And they confronted police, thugs, Mubarak media mouthpieces, and the corrupted National Party. For 18 days, politicians, journalists, artists, activists, and independent people believed it was the time of a change, a fundamental change for Egypt. Then, finally, they did it. They changed the, their country, and Mubarak was forced to step down on February 11, 2011. Now the Egyptian regime considered the revolution a death certificate of the Egyptian state. President Sisi accused the revolution that it was behind the crisis of the current Ethiopian dam. In 2019, Sisi described the 2011 revolution as a conspiracy against police and the Egyptian army. Many Egyptian revolutionaries are being killed, arrested, or living in exile. They believe that the revolution is like a bad nightmare for the Sisi regime. So the regime targets every activist who took part in the 2011 revolution. Today, things are getting worse regarding the demands of the revolution. The government increased the bread prices and more than 30 million Egyptians under the poverty line. The regime cut gas subsidies, raised taxes, and spent billions on the mega-projects. In addition, stagnation of political life is crystal clear, with greater repression ever and a large number of political prisoners. In a situation like this, with all causes that spurred Egyptians to take into street against Mubarak are getting worse, the question is, are we expecting another uprising in Egypt soon or not? To answer this question and learn more about Egypt's situation on the 11th anniversary of the Egyptian Revolution, join me today in this episode. Hossam al-Hamalawi. Hossam is a journalist, photographer, and long-time activist with Egypt's revolutionary socialist movement. He helped document dissent in Egypt with his lens. He is currently based in Berlin, where he is doing his PhD on the Egyptian security services before and after the revolution. Hossam, thank you very much for joining me today. And Stephen Koch is a senior fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is an expert on Arab and Turkish politics, as well as U.S. Middle East policy. Koch is the author of False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East, The Struggle for Egypt from Nasser to Tahrir Square, which won the 2012 gold medal from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to be with you, as Okay, Hassam, let me start with you. You were there. You witnessed the revolution from day one. How do you remember Tuesday, 25th January 2011? Um, on the morning of uh, January 25th, uh, I remember I was uh, asked by uh, one of the pundits on Twitter uh, whether I was expecting a revolution today or not. And my answer was, of course not. I mean, no revolutions uh, break out uh, via Facebook uh, events. Um, this does not mean that I was dismissing uh, completely uh, the idea of a revolution in general, because actually, if you go back um, to my blog, you will find that I was already blogging in the months in advance of January 25th, saying that there is something in the air and the curve for social struggle is going up and that we might be expecting a revolution soon. 
On that day, I was not actually in the streets. Uh, there was a division of labor between me and my comrades. So I spent actually the day uh, in charge of disseminating uh, updates and information and photographs that I was receiving from uh, fellow activists in the streets uh, among the different social media platforms and the international and local uh, news outlets. And the day started and um, there were some serious protests happening and I was really impressed. But late in the evening, um, a fellow comrade called me from Tahrir Square saying, Hussein, there is at least half a million people in the square. And I mean, of course, I laughed and I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, there is no way. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, what sort of drugs are you taking today? Um, and actually she said, no, no, you won't believe it. You know, there is at least like, maybe there is like one million people in the square. I was like, OK. And, you know, my comrade, uh, this one of my uh, comrade of mine was uh, known for inflating numbers of protests in general. So I was like, OK. But then I started receiving uh, the videos and the photos and the visuals uh, from the square. And I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen a protest in Cairo or in Egypt as big as uh, the one uh, that I'm seeing right now. And my estimate and what I told everyone uh, in the close circle of activists that I had was that if we manage to sustain this level of mobilization till Friday, then we're talking about a full-fledged uh, revolution in the making. And this is what indeed happened. And regarding your feeling, Hussam, at time, when you say, I've never think that there is a revolution in Egypt, was it about frustration from the stagnation of political life uh, after the 2010 uh, parliament elections, or about you lost your trust in the Egyptian people that they will never took into street against Mubarak? Uh, I think that you misunderstood me, Osama. Uh, what I said was that um, I was asked whether on the 25th this was a revolution or not. Hmm. And my answer in the beginning was that, no, I mean, we have to wait and see. But I've never lost faith in a revolution. Actually, I was known to be someone that's mocked by his colleagues and his comrades because I was always talking about a revolution in the making and that this regime cannot be reformed. And I've been in the ranks of uh, the, revolution, the revolutionary socialists since 1998. So I did expect a revolution to happen one day. I, I've, I've never lost faith. And I haven't lost faith either today. And this is something that we'll probably talk about later yeah, sure. uh, in the show. Yeah. And Steve, in, in his speech on February 11th, 2011, former U.S. President Barack Obama described the Egyptian revolution, said, and I quote, there are very few moments in our lives where we have the privilege to witness history taking place. This is one of those moments. This is one of those times. The people of Egypt have spoken. Their voices have been heard. And Egypt will never be the same. If you spend the first three days of the revolution in Egypt, you met with politicians, activists, and journalists in Tahrir Square. Um, how do you describe your experience there? Well, it really was. First of all, thanks for the question, Osama. Um, it really was one of the most extraordinary experiences of, uh, of my career. Um, I obviously experienced it much differently from Egyptians, um, but it was still extraordinarily exhilarating and edifying. Um, to see so many people from all walks of life descend upon Tahrir Square. Um, I, I got there 
sometime in the relatively early part of the night on January 25th. Um, and like you said, I was in Egypt. I was in Egypt up until the morning of uh, the Friday, the day of rage. Um, but on the 25th, after some failed tries to get into the into Tahrir Square, I did get in. And it was really, as I said, an extraordinary moment. Um, many, many people um, who the tremendous amount of goodwill. Um, I was clearly one of uh, just a handful of foreigners wandering around the crowds and people were in, um, they were very serious, but also in a kind of somewhat of a, of a joyous mood inside the, inside Tahrir Square. The problem was something that I had witnessed was on the outside of the square where people had moved towards the parliament building where there was, um, battles with, uh, with, with the riot police. But people were, you know, interested in telling me that it was time for uh, Mubarak to go um, and that he should join uh, Zina Labedin Ben Ali, Tunisia's recently deposed leader in, uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia. I, it, to be quite honest with you, I didn't really know what to make of all of this. Certainly something felt different from previous protests in Egypt. Uh, of course, you all remember that um, the decade leading up to the uprising in Egypt, well, not quite a decade, probably eight years leading up to the uprising that overthrew Mubarak, um, was a decade of protest. Uh, but there was something that felt different. And I, I think the fact that Ben Ali had fallen um, just 11 days before uh, the January 25th uprising um, gave people a sense that there was uh, a possibility. Of course, as Hossam says, you know, no one woke up on January 25th knowing that there would be uh, an uprising that would overthrow Hosni Mubarak, who had been in power at that point for almost 30 years. Um, but there was something that was running through uh, Tahrir Square with the huge crowds um, on that first night of the uprising that gave people a sense that there really was anything was possible. Um, one other point, I, I did duck into the Semiramis Hotel at one point during my time in Tahrir Square late at night on the 25th and 26th of January. And what was so odd to me was that there was a whole other set of Egyptians who were celebrating police day. Um, and I think in looking back, it kind of foreshadowed this way in which the elite subsequently sought to fight back and pursue a, a counter-revolutionary agenda, which has brought Egypt to the to the point where um, it is now. Chief, uh, profound, I can't hear your voice. Yeah. And the profound repression um, that Egyptians are experiencing now. Um, and um, as a former, I work as a dentist in Egypt. I think there is Egyptian dentist who told you before the revolution that he expected this as a revolution and Mubarak will step down. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, uh, on the night of January 24th, in fact, a small group uh, of Americans had dinner with Allah Aswani. Uh, and he was very open over dinner that he thought that the protests that were called for for the next day were going to be very big and consequential, um, which was very, very interesting. And then, of course, in, in, in the course of my time in Tahrir Square on the night of January 25th, I ran into Allah Aswani again. And he said to me, this is what I told you. I told you there was going to be a revolution. Um, he said, you will tell your grandchildren that you were here 
for the Egyptian uh, for the Egyptian Revolution. I'm not quite old enough to have grandchildren yet, but I have told my children. <laughs> yeah, and um, Hussam, regarding what Steve said about the decade of struggling, from 2000, uh, 2000, yeah, 2000, 2001, there was a movement, a protest in, in Egypt in, in many occasions, 6th April movement, and many of these occasions, I believe that you witnessed, you was a part of this protest and this long-term struggle. Um, would you please explain to me this decade before the revolution in Egypt? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, even when uh, revolutions break out and they take everyone by surprise, including the revolutionaries themselves, uh, they are, in fact, usually preceded or actually always preceded by a long process um, where uh, dissent is brewing, where uh, dissent and anger are accumulating, where the mass movement is gaining experience through smaller battles and that would lead into smaller victories or smaller defeats. So I would trace um, uh, January 25th, uh, 2011, to be back all the way to September 2000. Uh, and that's with the outbreak of the Second Palestinian Intifada, which uh, created or which triggered uh, a mass movement in Egypt for the first time, probably since 1977, that reclaimed street politics after um, after a decade or two uh, where Egypt was going through its own uh, first war on terror, which in fact was uh, a dirty war, uh, Latin American style, although with a lesser intensity, where dissent was uh, squashed uh, by Mubarak security services in the name of fighting terror. But the second Palestinian Intifada, for the first time, revived street politics once again. So you had mass protests during the years of 2000, 2001, 2002. And then with the invasion of Iraq, uh, this pro-Palestinian or Palestine solidarity movement uh, turned into an anti-Iraq war movement. Um, and I remember in March, for two days, we took control of Tahrir Square in what would amount later to be a dress rehearsal uh, for the uprising. That's when the Americans invaded uh, Iraq. Now, all of these regional or all, all of these mobilizations over regional issues basically um, facilitated for us uh, a margin where we could maneuver and organize uh, in the streets. Uh, that what that did not exist in the 1990s. So you cannot separate the rise of Kifaya in 2004 uh, from what had been happening uh, before it. And actually, most of the leaders of Kifaya came from the ranks of the anti-war and the Palestine solidarity uh, movements. Kifaya mobilized against Mubarak, and although the biggest Kifaya protest ever never really exceeded few thousands, and that's like really like the biggest, um, it managed to destroy Mubarak's taboo uh, once and for all, using uh, clever and savvy media tactics that disseminated those visuals of dissent to the wider sections of the population. Uh, by December 2006, this was another turning point where 
the strike in the largest textile mill uh, in the Middle East, uh, in Ghazl al-Mahalla, which is uh, in the heart of the Nile Delta, went on strike. And after the workers, uh, it was a strike over bread and butter issues. But as soon as the workers uh, scored victory, by the domino effect, um, uh, a mass wave of strikes started sweeping first the textile sector, but then spilled over to the other sectors uh, of the Egyptian working class. And it is this rising social curve uh, that kept on uh, uh, going in what turned out to be the longest and the most sustained uh, wave of strike action that this country had witnessed since 1946. And it is within that context that the anti-torture protests of 2010 uh, around uh, the murder, the torture and murder of Khaled Saeed uh, took place. Now, anti-torture protests definitely um, were uh, a common theme in Egyptian descent since 2004, at least. But never had been the situation so ripe uh, for the spread of uh, uh, dissent as it was in 2010. So all of these uh, struggles basically accumulated till it reached the explosion uh, at the beginning of 2011. Uh, definitely the Tunisian uh, revolution and the ouster of uh, Ben Ali was a trigger uh, because it was very inspiring for Egyptians who watched it live and saw another uh, Arab dictator basically falling and people could draw parallels. But if this had happened in the year 2000, I don't think that uh, we would have witnessed the revolution. But again, yeah, in 2011 was the climax of that protest. Yeah, and Hassam, you mentioned many turning points. And um, Steve, this is a question now. After 11 years, what is the expected turning point in Egypt now? Well, I think that that's an extraordinarily difficult question to answer with any kind of precision. Um, as we know, revolutions are very, very hard to predict. Why was there a revolution in Egypt or an uprising in Egypt in 2011 when there wasn't one the year before or two years before? Um, I think that, the as, as Hassan has said, the situation in Egypt leading up to the uprising in January 2011 had deteriorated markedly, and there were a number of events. Um, and I think going back to 2000 and the, and the Palestinian Tifada is, is actually quite important because I think actually outside observers tend to underplay um, the role of the Intifada in developing networks and opposition networks and the development of them and how they carry through the rest of the decade. But obviously things are very bad in Egypt right now, but can you map onto Egypt of today similar kinds of processes and, and try to target or pinpoint where uh, a new turning point might be that would bring people out into the streets. Uh, I think that that's an impossible question to, to answer. I have been, uh, I have read any number of times um, an article by a university professor at Duke university named Timur Kuran called now out of never. It's, it's not a, it's not a theory of revolutions, but it's a theory of the unpredictability of revolutions. And of course, Things obviously have to deteriorate, but 
that point where people start altering their calculation of cost and turning out in the street is something that's unknowable. It's only knowable past tense. So um, I think it's very, very hard to know. But I do think what's clear is that many of those indicators, many of those things that were um, undermining what the Egyptian government was saying at the time about reality versus objective reality, and that gap between what the government was saying and objective reality is as large, if not larger, than it was in the years leading up to the 2011 uh, uprising. Which which suggests that all is not well, but that doesn't mean that we can pinpoint what a turning point would be that would bring people out into the streets. There's lots of dictators out there who have supposedly fallen by now, and they haven't. Yeah, and for our um, listeners, you can join the discussion, ask questions, or make a contribution. Just press the call button, and you will be held in a caller's queue. Um, Hussam, reason that triggered the Jan Revolution 2011, like corruption, torture, repression, and poverty, are now present, actually, in Egypt, and perhaps worse. From your perspective, are there any indications of a similarly popular and political movement against the current regime? Uh, to be honest, I don't think this will happen uh, anytime soon. Um, you know, when when counter-revolutions uh, triumph, they don't take you back to square one. They take you back to square zero, if not below zero. And um, it, the situation today in Egypt might be worse uh, than it was in 2011. I mean, let me go back in time a little bit. If I was to reduce... Um, all the the problems that basically triggered the uprising in 2011, I can probably narrow them down into two. One is political repression uh, manifested by uh, uh, police torture. The second one are economic reasons. You know, the 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 horrible and the bad distribution of wealth in our society, the social inequalities. Now, these two problems have actually been worsened. Uh, by the counter-revolutionary regime of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And Sisi is not going to present a solution for these two problems anytime soon. So the objective conditions for our revolutions are there, but these are not enough because there has to be also subjective conditions. And these are basically two things also to narrow them down. One is that you have to have organizations to sustain the mobilization. Uh, Spontaneous outbursts of dissent will, I mean, have already happened, like we've seen in September 2019 and September 2020. And by the way, there there are wildcat labor strikes happening here and there, as well as anti-gentrification fights, like fights over housing, are happening here and there that are spontaneous. But in order to sustain those protests and turn them into something that is accumulative and to crystallize them into a political program, you need structures, you need political parties, you need independent trade unions, you need community organizations. And all of these structures have been already smashed and completely destroyed by CC security services. And rebuilding them is going to take 
<laughs> I mean, some time. I mean, I cannot obviously give you estimates uh, uh, for when there will be this revival, but unfortunately, not anytime soon. The second uh, subjective condition that has to be present is hope. I mean, people, when they rebelled in 2011, they were hopeful about the outcome, that the outcome will be different. Now, after a decade of, of revolutions and counter-revolutions, people need to see a successful model somewhere in the region that would inspire them into action. So, so that if you look around you, I mean, the regime is always uh, using the card. Look at Syria, look at Iraq, look at Libya, look at this, look at that. But if a revolution, for example, succeeds in Sudan, in ousting the military dictatorship over there, I mean, this will not instantaneously trigger a domino effect in Egypt, but would act as a catalyst in the process of revival of this mass movement, because it will show Egyptians that if they rebel, if they revolt, they will not necessarily end up with the same scenarios as last time. And, and this is raising uh, another important point, Hossam. And Steve, what's the potential role model in the Middle East of hope now for Egyptian people? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, there, you know, when, when the uprisings happened and Ben Ali fell and Mubarak fell, people often looked to Turkey as a model for the region. I thought that this was sort of a, a silly way of looking at the, looking at the world. I think that, you know, each country is of itself and will have to find its its own way. I think that if anything, there's very little to be hopeful about when you look across uh, when you look across the Middle East. But I think that one of the things that people might be able to hold on to and one of the things that, you know, the uprisings altered is the fact that you have generations of people who have are have been mobilized. Uh, and are politically aware, regardless of the extreme levels of coercion under which they live, they remain engaged and seeking uh, a better future. Um, beyond that, it's very, very hard to see where people can look for, for inspiration uh, in the region itself. Or even beyond, look, the, the, the international environment does not lend itself at all to this, uh, to, to kind of breakthroughs. Um, and so people are going to have to look internally for those inspirations and for things to look at. Um, but it's other than the fact that people have been mobilized and continue the conversation and in their own ways continue to work uh, towards that better future is really, from my perspective, the really the only example of, of actual hope and inspiration within the region. And then there is another question, Steve, on this point. A protester in Egypt focused most on their anger on domestic issues such as poverty and government oppression. However, many observers noted that political change in Egypt could impact the country's foreign affairs, affecting long-standing policies with the United States and Western government. So from your perspective, um, why the West turn a blind eye on the decline situation in the Middle East, not only in Egypt, and turn a blind eye on the counter-revolution? Well, I think that the 
it's a it's a complicated question. It was it was very interesting when the time that I spent in Tahrir Square that there one it wasn't surprising to me that people were focused on political repression in their economic situation, and that in fact the American support for the Mubarak regime did not really figure too much into the uh, in, into protests. That was I think that was most surprising to people back in Washington after I returned. Um, but more to your point, I think that a couple of things ha- happened. One, I think that particularly when it came to the United States, I think the Obama administration made a couple of decisions throughout those 18 days of protest. The first was that um, it was clear from at least January 28th that it was the end of the Mubarak era. Uh, and that we, the United States would have to accommodate itself to an outcome that Egyptians themselves produced. So though, though there were voices that were counseling the United States to support Mubarak and through the, and see through the, the, the uprising and to use repression to get it under control, the Obama administration, I think, rightfully uh, recognized that after the Friday, the day of rage, that it was essentially over and that a transition was in order. And that it was not in either Washington's place nor within its power to manage uh, that transition. So that when it, and then it it accommodated itself to the executive authority of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. And then when Mohamed Morsi was elected president, the United States accommodated itself to an outcome that Egyptians themselves produced, whether they like, whether the United States liked it or all political factions in the United States liked it or not. Hmm. And then when it came to the coup in 2013, again, the United States accommodated itself to an outcome that Egyptians themselves produced. Although there was a considerable amount of debate at the time in Washington whether to call what had happened as a coup, because if you did, it would trigger uh, action based on uh, U.S. law that would require the administration to suspend aid, military aid to Egypt. And that was something that the Obama administration was reluctant to do for, as we all know the story, that how, you know, strategic interests often trump um, values when the yeah. United States is looking at it. And that's that's really what happened. Um, a, a series of difficult um choices that the United States accommodated itself to, and then ultimately a decision that was strategically tenable, but morally suspect. Uh, I will come to the, the military aid between the U.S. and the Sisi regime um, shortly, but Hussam, the question now is, what do you think? Did the United States or the Western government ever support the revolution in Egypt? I mean... The answer is uh, is no. I mean, just like uh, what Stephen explained, the U.S. at the end of the day um, is quite pragmatic. Uh, it has a set of foreign policy goals, and whoever is in power and wh- whoever is gonna like secure or implement those goals or act accordingly, they would deal with him or her. I mean, they don't really care. Um, I mean, they can use whatever propaganda uh, uh, that, you know, they can talk about, like, you know, American values, or freedom, democracy, this, that, or that they don't like Islamists, or they don't like this, or they don't like that. 
but they, at the end of the day, they would deal with the devil, you know, as long as it's in their own uh, interests. And the interests of uh, the U.S., I mean, again, I, I know that I'm very reductionist, you know, uh, and I'm like shamelessly like summarizing them. Uh, it's the security of the state of Israel the secure uh, flow of oil, the security of the Suez Canal, and stability, regional stability. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, any sort of radical change from below would definitely raise some red flags, uh, not just in the U.S., but across uh, the Western and, I mean, the global uh, uh, superpower capitals. So, no, I mean, I don't think really that uh, that they were pro-revolution or supporting the revolution. Hmm. Uh, and if we go back in time, let's uh, let's remember what Hillary Clinton, for example, said um, and what Joe Biden himself said uh, during the first uh, week of the 18 days when they were assuring the, um, the American policymakers that the regime is stable and they don't think it's going to collapse. Joe Biden refused. To label Mubarak as a dictator because simply he's a friend of the U.S. and uh, and, and Israel. Um, but you know whatever happened happened, and they have to deal with a situation now on the ground, which is Mubarak is gone. So obviously they shifted their attention to SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, hoping for a smooth transition that will not alter really uh, uh, the rules of the game. And from your perspective now, does the United States administration like to deal with a general uh, like Abdel Fattah Sisi in Egypt rather than any elected civilian president came after a revolution? You know, as we um, are talking now, uh, I've just read uh, two new uh, statements uh, by State Department where uh, new uh, where they approved uh, uh, new arms sales uh, to Abdel Fattah Sisi. Um, the U.S. would like to deal with a stable regime, whether it is a fascist general who is going to impose this stability or a democratically elected president who will, yes, I mean, listen to the public, but will not alter really uh, uh, his or her foreign policy. They would deal uh, uh, with them. Um, at, at this point, I don't think that the U.S. policymakers uh, see any other alternative from their political realist uh, uh, point of view to Abdel Fattah Sisi. So they will continue uh, supporting him. Yes, you will find squabbles every now and then, some pressures to, uh, uh, to release some high-profile uh, political detainees and prisoners of conscience. But I don't think that they would be pushing for regime change or supporting any uh, uh, radical alternative. Yeah, I'm, I'm just reading the news you just mentioned now. Breaking U.S. State Department has just approved a possible foreign military sale of 12C-130J Super Hercules military transport aircraft and related equipments to Egypt at an estimated cost of $2.2 billion. Steve uh, how do you see this uh, new deal? This is this is business as usual. I mean, it's it's really um, it, difficult for me to put a finer point on it than than Hossam had. I, I think that the United States has in the past often talked about you know 
freedom and democracy, particularly during the early period of George W. Bush's administration. But in fact, um, the United States is interested in what its core interests are in the Middle East, which is helping to ensure Israeli security, the free flow of energy resources out of the region, and basically American primacy um, in the service of those two other interests. And Egypt, a stable Egypt, a, a, a leadership in Egypt that, regardless of its character, that is friendly to the United States, is an important part of a regional order that makes those things possible. So uh, the fact that President Biden came to office saying that he would inject American values into American foreign policy should have been greeted with a significant amount of skepticism because uh, when, as we say, push comes to shove, those strategic interests will almost always, almost always take precedent over the values that American politicians like to talk about when they're before uh, Americans or at times when they are abroad. Uh, this has been a, I think, an, a clear pattern in American foreign policy over many, many years. Yeah, and Hassam, yesterday an interesting report published by The Guardian revealed leaked videos from inside Al-Salam police station showing brutal torture and prisoners sending source calls to save their lives. Do you see any similarities between what The Guardian published last night and what the police did to Khaled Saeed in June 2010? Uh, not just uh, Khaled Saeed in 2010. I mean, I was part of the Egyptian uh, uh, blogosphere that was um, disseminating and, leak, uh, and leaking um, police videos, uh, sorry, uh, uh, torture videos out of police stations uh, since 2006-2007. And it is basically systematic, and this what has been happening uh, uh, in Egyptian police stations, especially um, uh, since the Mubarak's era. I mean, Egyptian police never really enjoyed a good reputation at any point uh, in history, but uh, it, the situation definitely uh, have started getting really worse um, uh, under the reign of Hosni Mubarak. Um, so are there similarities? Yes. I mean, there are similarities, but I mean, I've, I've, I've seen more horrible videos uh, in the past, and this is unfortunately something systematic. And, you know, uh, I know you're following up the analysis of these videos every time we had a leaked video from inside uh, a police station or related to uh, an official of the CC regime. Some people take out with the analysis that this is a war inside the regime and there is institution uh, uh, issues from inside. Do you believe in this conspiracy theory that there is some institution inside the state against Abu Fattah al-Sisi? Uh, no, I mean, at least not in 2022. Uh, definitely following the coup, uh, there was a state of chaos um, uh, among the security services and the different um, uh, institutions of the state. And this is something normal that happens uh, during times of political crises and, and especially times of revolutions. But, um, I mean, anyone who's been following uh, the political uh, career of Abdel Fattah Sisi following the coup 
has been really active in purging um, the Mukhabarat and the other uh, security services in a bit to control them and to um, um, and to basically wipe out um, any competitor or any dissident uh, within those ranks. So at 2022, I mean, I don't think that there are divisions uh, within the regime. At least if there are any divisions, they are definitely not that deep to the extent that we would uh, see their impact in the political arena. Um, so I don't think that uh, someone is deliberately leaking those torture videos in order to embarrass uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, for example, if that's what you were trying to uh, get at. Yeah, some people said they just released these videos to people in exile to just, yeah, embarrass Sisi. This is what no, I read yesterday. Not, not really. I mean, I, you, you don't really need someone. You know, I mean, high up in the regime in order for these videos to reach a dissident uh, yeah. abroad. And by the way, Osama, I mean, this is not the first uh, police brutality video to be the, to be leaked uh, uh, after 2013. I mean, we've seen plenty uh, of those videos uh, before. So, no, I mean, I don't think that this conspiracy theory really uh, is, is valid in that. Yeah, and, and Steve, how do you see the reaction so far about these shocking scenes from inside the police station, the government, the media? Steve, would you please unmute Sorry, yourself? Yeah, here, yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Um, you know, here in the United States, there's actually very little coverage of human rights abuses in the kind of mainstream media. Um, I think here in Washington, people are very well aware of the profound repression in Sisi's Egypt. Um, but there's also, after a, a difficult two decades for the United States in the Middle East, I, I think that there's no real appetite for the United States to take on these issues. And so people either look the other way or they resign themselves to, their, to the fact that there's belief that there's very little that they can do, uh, can do about it, as evidenced by the fact that the State Department just authorized uh, the sales of these transport aircraft to uh, CC, despite what we all know by the State Department's own documentation of uh, human rights practices in Egypt, that the country is profoundly uh, repressive. But um, as far as the American media is concerned, there are many, many other things uh, ahead of Egypt in line for coverage. Uh, for better or worse. And the um, working group on Egypt calls on Secretary Blinken to reprogram foreign aid withheld from Egypt considering the declined situation of human rights in Egypt. So from your perspective, m many people when Biden won against Trump pit on uh, Biden administration regarding democracy and the human um, rights. Uh, did President Biden meet the expectation regarding foreign relation between U.S. and Sisi regime? Well, no, I mean, clearly not. Uh, I, first of all, just, you know, count me as profoundly skeptical uh, that the Biden administration was actually going to follow through on this, you know, values forward kind of foreign policy. And I think that um, for the first few months, the president uh, did not call President Sisi. And I think that gave people some hope that uh, the president would, in fact, um, 
take some difficult decisions and, and, and hold the Egyptian president and leadership accountable. But of course, then you had the 11 day conflict in Gaza in May, in which the president felt compelled to pick up the telephone and speak to President Sisi and praise President Sisi for the role that he played in securing a ceasefire during that, that conflict. So, um, and this was what, you know, beginning in January, it was clear to me was going to happen that um, that the president and the sec- new secretary of state had made very strong statements about the importance of values, whether publicly or on telephone calls with leaders in the region, but that as developments uh, would occur, it would become harder and harder for them, um, given the calculation of the strategic interests of the United States, to uh, be faithful to those statements. Yeah, Hossam, I-, I want to go back to the domestic um, situation in Egypt. I interviewed many pro-CC and anti-revolution guests uh, over the, 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 um, the recent years, and they raised the point that the revolutionary movement and their allies already had their opportunity to govern and to be in office in Egypt. However, they failed, lost people's trust, and didn't introduce any solution for Egyptian uh, problem. So this is CC's and the so-called state turn, and this is their turn to govern Egypt, and you lost your uh, uh, yours. What do you think? Well, uh, I mean, if they mean this uh, one year uh, of Mohammed Morsi's rule uh, that basically ended in a coup, uh, if they describe this as the revolution had its own opportunity, but you guys failed, then, you know, this is uh, such a laughable um, argument that uh, I don't really know how to start responding to. But at the end of the day, you can turn this argument uh, the other way around and tell them, okay, well, Sisi has been in power since 2014. What happened to the economy? What happened to um, uh, civil rights and liberties, etc., etc.? And you'll find that the guy has failed miserably in each single uh, field that we're discussing. And at the end of the day, I mean, you're talking to... um, someone, I mean, who, I mean, I obviously was in the opposition uh, during uh, Morsi's time. And I, um, although that definitely it was the will of the Egyptian people to uh, elect Morsi at the time. um, But in my view that he failed miserably. Now, would the alternative to that would be a coup that would cut short this democratic transition and launching those wide-scale massacres and turning Egypt into a semi-fascist state? I don't really think so. I think that we actually deserve better. We deserve better than what Mohamed Morsi was trying to do and definitely better than uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi. Okay, and Steve, um, Pret, Freedom, Social Justice and Human Dignity were the revolution demands. 11 years on, Things are getting worse. From your opinion, who should be held accountable? The current regime, CC regime, or the revolution itself? You know, it's a, it's a good question because in my time in Egypt since, uh, since the uprising, there have been people who I have met and talked with at length who have blamed the revolution for, uh, for Egypt's current travails. Um, it, un, un, 
undoubtedly that there is years and decades of problems that have built up and created this complex web of, of economic problems uh, and quite different in policy prescriptions for what should be done about it. Um, yet President Sisi has been the president since 2014 um, and he is directly responsible as the one who holds all of the power. Um, so if Egyptians are unhappy with their economic situation right now, clearly the blame lies on the current leadership. You can't blame Hosni Mubarak, now dead for uh, a number of years and deposed since 2011 for Egypt's current situation. Of course, there was tremendous stagnation and there was the kind of half-hearted efforts at neoliberal reform on top of further efforts at neoliberal reforms that had done, uh, that had done damage. Um, it's unclear to me in the 12 months that Mohamed Morsi was the president of Egypt what was done uh, on the economy. It struck me that there was a lot of drift in economic policymaking at the time. So you would have to lay the blame squarely at the feet of uh, President Sisi, but also what came before. And Hassam Sisi attacked the Egyptian revolution on many occasions, actually. He accused it with many accusations. Firstly, the Ethiopian dam crisis. Secondly, the death certificate of the state. Thirdly, conspiracy against the military and the police, etc., etc. However, in his statement today, this morning, he praised the revolution, describing it as a step toward dignity and prosperity and national independence. How do you see Sisi's position from 2011 revolution? Um, well, I, I mean, I've, I've read the statement and actually um, most of it was dealing with the heroism of the police in fighting the Brits in Ismailia on the 25th of January. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and in the end, he just put like, you know, I mean, a couple of uh, words about the revolution, which, you know, I mean, I was surprised. But of course, I mean, we were all laughing. But at the same time. There is no question that it is a nightmare for him and for the ruling Egyptian elites. Uh, for a number of years, they saw the possibility uh, um, of them losing their privileges. They, they saw the possibility and, and the ghosts and the specters of uh, losing uh, their political power and the collapse of the entire system that they depended on and they were sitting at the top of its pyramid. So obviously he hates the revolution. He hates anything that's related to it. And he has already professed this on a number uh, of occasions. Now, maybe, you know, his speech writer today decided to add these couple of words about the revolution. Who knows, you know, I mean, what's in his mind, but this does not change the fact that uh, the 25th of January is definitely a nightmare. And Steve, um, my question for you is about the opposition uh, in exile in diaspora. How do you see the Egyptian opposition now? Do they still have the capacity to, to make any change? I don't really see how they can, given that they, even with the you know marvels of social media and the internet and communications, I just, it, it, it strikes me that um, they're, of course, anything is possible, and you have examples of inspirational leaders on the outside who have helped foment revolution on the inside. But who is that inspirational leader? 
And I think that the, the Egyptian state is a lot smarter than it once was. Smarter in, in not in the good way, but smarter in the sense that they, the, the, their ability to surveil and disrupt is much better than it was in 2010 and 2011. Um, it strikes me that the opposition on the outside is uh, divided, demoralized, may lose some of its bases uh, in places like Istanbul uh, and elsewhere. And so um, this is not, at least in the short term, an opposition on the outside that can um, seriously make a difference. Although it's interesting to see how the regime responds when there is a challenge from the outside. And what this suggests to me, obviously, is that the uh, Sisi and the people around him understand that Egyptians are not necessarily, as we would say, buying what they are selling. And so that any effective or coherent counter-narrative that increases the gap between what they want Egyptians to believe and what's really happening is a problem for them. And their ferocious response is, is, is the perfect indication of that. But in terms of building a co coherent opposition that can effectively challenge the regime from the outside, um, at least right now, it doesn't look like it. It looks like opposition on the outside will continue to work in the spaces where it can um, and hope for a better day. Yeah, and, and Sam, with these circumstances, from your opinion, what next for Egyptian revolution after 11 years? Um, if you're talking about what's next for the Egyptian revolution in terms of what the Egyptian revolutionaries uh, should do at this point, um, it is a very complicated question. I mean, these are very difficult times. Uh, first, I have to say that I do agree with uh, Stephen's um, uh, assessment of the um, opposition in exile. And, uh, I mean, we have seen uh, several initiatives, uh, largely by, um, uh, by the opposition that are based in uh, Turkey uh, and at some point in Qatar and elsewhere, but it's mainly Turkey. And in my view, their problem is that they are presenting themselves um, as an alternative, as an immediate alternative to the regime with some mindset that we are in 2011, which is not the case. Hence, you will find them jumping opportunistically on, on, on any outbursts of protests like what happened in September 2019 and September 2020, um, predicting that the regime will fall at any uh, moment. And I don't think that this is really helpful uh, for the cause, and it definitely fires back and it, it eats up from their credibility. In my view, what should happen at this point is that we should first acknowledge that it is a long-term fight, that this regime is not going to collapse tomorrow, it's not going to collapse next week, it's not going to collapse anytime soon, unfortunately for the reasons that I had outlined earlier uh, uh, when we started this podcast. So once we acknowledge that it's a long-term fight, then we should plan and mobilize our resources based on that assessment, which means that we should focus on smaller battles now. Uh, instead of raising the slogan, down with military regime. I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm against Hukm al-Askar and I want the military regime to collapse. 
but this will not happen uh, tomorrow. So let's focus on smaller battles, like, for example, the release of political detainees, uh, which I think that should top uh, everyone's political agenda uh, at this point. Let's focus on smaller political initiatives to try to open up the political spectrum a little bit. If you go back in time when Kifaya, uh, uh, I mean, started in 2004, I mean, Kifaya basically proposed some reforms. Kifaya was not necessarily a revolutionary movement, but it was a milestone and it was a stage that dissent had to go through before it uh, ferments or ferments into uh, a revolution. So again, what's next? What's next is planning for smaller battles, mm. trying to open up the political sphere a little bit. Uh, there is a fundamental question, Osama, regarding this point. Does Sisi regime need to do this, need to give the opposition space for small no. battles? No, of course not. I mean, and, and no dictatorial regime would ever need at any point uh, to give something. I mean, you, you grab it. Uh, Mubarak did not give us anything. We grabbed uh, this space. It is a very difficult situation. I mean, I'm, 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 at the end of the day, I'm here in Berlin. I'm not in Cairo, so I can speak freely. Uh, others in Egypt are definitely in a much, much, much more difficult situation. So, and there is nothing uh, uh, that forces Sisi at this point to give us anything. But again, we need to build up this momentum and to build up this pressure bit by bit by focusing on smaller battles. And then yeah. we can start talking about regime change, but honestly, not anytime soon. Okay, um, and Steve, do you agree with, with Hussam regarding this point? Yeah, I don't... I... I, I, he agrees with me. I agree with him. I, I, I don't see. <laughs> I, I don't really see a, a, a significant difference in, in in our positions with with regard. This is if if Egyptians want change, it's going to take a longer period of time. It is not something that one can expect over a, a short period of time. As I alluded to earlier, um, the durability of dictators sometimes outstrips for many years the end of their legitimacy. Um, and um, and that's what makes revolution so unpredictable. Okay, and some um, your final message to your friends in jail who were part of the Egyptian revolution with you 11 years ago. Um, my message to them is that I think of you every day and I'm doing my best together with other Egyptian exiles abroad in order to keep the flame um, uh, up and to uh, remind everyone um, of your sacrifices. And we're doing our best to create a solidarity movement that will try to pressure uh, the regime into uh, releasing you. Uh, you have not been forgotten and we will leave no one behind. And Steve, I, I need your final words, but in Arabic, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I, I think, you know, I'm obviously an outsider um, and have benefited from the wisdom of many Egyptians over a long period of time. Um, 
I, I too hope for better days for Egyptians. My, my message is, is that they should not expect much from the United States. I think that, the, as I said, strategic interests will always, almost always trump our, uh, our values when it comes to foreign policy. And that even if we did want to approach Egypt in a different way, um, we don't have the kind of influence or resources available to us to uh, really shift uh, Egypt in ways that I think people would like. That is uh, an, an, an Egyptian story, um, and as well it should be. Um, and I trust that in time it will shift in ways that Egyptians find uh, a more open and just society. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen Kark and Hassan Al-Hamalawi, for joining me today. Thank you both for it's being with me. It's a great pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. And my last thank words... You, yeah, thank you very much. My last words in this episode, as an Egyptian, as one of many thousands who took part in the Egyptian Revolution 11 years ago, as an exiled journalist and as a refugee in the United Kingdom, I would say that one day my people and my country in Egypt will have the revolution demands. Freedom, bread, social justice and human dignity maybe i lost friends perhaps i lost my homeland but i will never lose my hope thank you very much see you bye